Father, we come before you tonight with broken hearts, Lord, for Ganado, first and foremost. Uh, this, this wasn't on our minds as, as something that could happen in such close proximity to Edna. But, Father, I just pray that you would be with the people in the community of Ganado right now, as we've just found out about uh, the shooting that's taken place. We ask, Father, that you would give the law enforcement officials skill and wisdom to at, uh, to catch this criminal who's still at large and to keep safe all the citizens of Ganado. And, Father, that law enforcement throughout Jackson County would be alert to protect citizens here throughout our local communities. Father, we ask now, as your people, as your sons and daughters in Christ, we ask, Father, that we would come tonight with with humble and teachable hearts, that you would help us as we reflect on these questions that you've placed on the hearts of our youth and of adult leaders. We pray, God, that you would allow us to think about these questions from the viewpoint of your word, not the viewpoint of secular man or secular wisdom, but, Father, from the perspective of sacred scripture. Help us to bring our lives into alignment with the authority of scripture so that we might be the men and women you've called us to be in Christ. Father, I pray you'd give me wisdom to accurately answer these questions, to have humility to know when I don't have an answer that is consistent with Scripture, or if I just don't know the the answer at all, Lord, I pray you would help me to acknowledge that and to go and find the answer for whoever asked the question. Father, we're so grateful for the privilege that it is to come together as fellow believers, to worship you corporately, and to know more about who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. May this time be a means of worship, God, and may it be a means of growing in the grace and knowledge of who you are. We love you so much, Father, and we thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Question one. Who is the oldest person in the Bible? Well, I would say that the oldest person off the top of my head would be Adam. Uh, I believe he lived 956 years. Let me go and confirm that for you. Oh, actually, uh, Methuselah, 969 years of age. So uh, whoever asked that question... That's a really long time to live. 969 years of age. It's Methuselah. He was one of the oldest people, or one of the first people um, mentioned in the Bible. I'll give you the text right here. Genesis 5, verses 21 to 27 records Methuselah as the oldest person in the Bible followed by Jared, 962 years, Genesis 5 as well, and then um, Noah, 950 years, Adam, fourth, 930 years. Wow, so uh, Adam wasn't even in the top three. So whoever asked that question, great question. We know now Methuselah, probably not somebody on your short list of people who you want to study, but nevertheless holds the title of oldest biblical character. So... Uh, Genesis 5 gives you the genealogies uh, of those who follow Adam and gives you ages. So if you want to go and and look up some of the oldest figures in biblical history, feel free to look at those dates. But great question, whoever asked it. Let's see. If I know someone gay, how do I tell it, or how do I tell them that it's wrong without seeming like it's out of nowhere? Well, that's a very good question, a very relevant question in light of our current situation in our society where homosexuality is not only being condoned but celebrated. I think the best way that you can witness to anybody, regardless of their um, sexual orientation, is to first and foremost be somebody who lives a lifestyle that's consistent with your Christian faith. Um, As we've been learning in James 2, really the whole book of James for that matter, If you model Christ-like conduct in your life, 
people are going to notice something marked different about you. And what that's going to do is it's going to make people ask questions. Hey, why do you not talk a certain way like all the other kids do? Why do you go to church? Why do you bring your Bible to school if that's something that you do? Why do you talk about the Bible so often? Um, Why do you not like participating in certain extracurricular activities, whether it be you know, parties where you know there might be some inappropriate behavior going on. Or if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, why are you not um, why, why are you not committing acts of sexual immorality with them like everybody else? Of course, everybody's doing it, so why would you withhold from indulging yourself in those activities? Different lifestyle patterns that the world celebrates and is involved with is fundamentally often, it's fundamentally unbiblical. It's not consistent with the testimony of Scripture. So if you're living a lifestyle that's above reproach, if you're living a lifestyle that is putting biblical principles on display, questions are going to naturally arise from those in your life, particularly if you have a relationship with somebody who you know is an unbeliever, or in this case, in the context of this question, if you know is a homosexual. So I would say, first and foremost, live a lifestyle above reproach and that's consistent with Scripture. And make it a point to... Find opportunities to share your faith, even if it's something simple, asking how you can pray for them. Um, if, you're, if you have friends with them, they probably know that you go to church. Maybe if there's not much being discussed, if you're just hanging out with this person, bring up something about the Bible that you're learning. See how God might bring that out into conversations regarding what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. Those are some things that you can do practically to make it feel like it's not coming out of nowhere. But I do want to say this by way of pastoral counsel. Um, at some point, you are going to have to have a hard conversation with them um, just because it's your biblical right and, and responsibility to do that. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be God's ambassadors. Uh, we're called to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is, within, that is within us. So in light of those biblical instructions, there is going to be a time where you do have to maybe bring it up out of nowhere. Say, hey, you know, because I love you and I care for you, I need to let you know what God thinks about your lifestyle pattern, your identification as a homosexual. Um, you go to a great passage you can go to actually for this, and I know we've talked about this in the past, but if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to read the text. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the key, verse 11. Such were some of you, past tense. In this Corinthian context, there were people who had been enslaved to the lifestyle pattern of homosexuality that God, by virtue of bringing them from spiritual death to spiritual life by virtue of the power of the gospel, they were delivered from their lifestyle of homosexuality. And Paul continues by saying, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. So our application, friends, is live a lifestyle of approach. Find creative ways to share your faith just through ordinary day-by-day conversation with this person. And at some point, be prepared to give a testimony of what the Bible teaches about salvation, a testimony about what God has done in transforming your life and offer them the hope that God can transform their life. Right here in the inspired Word of God, Paul says that some Christians in Corinth had been delivered from the sin of homosexuality and they can be delivered too. So I know the question specifically asked how to do it out of no, or how to how to uh, talk about this truth without it seeming like it came out of nowhere? Um, definitely important to do that. But at the same time, just be prepared. Be prepared to be a witness, uh, to share the gospel with them, to provide them the only hope that any sinner can have, regardless of their sin, regardless of their lifestyle pattern. The only hope that any man can have is Jesus Christ, um, and it's a great gospel opportunity um, in that. So I hope that was helpful to ever ask the question, um, just for just to make it a little bit more practical for you as well. Uh, for about the first year of my time working in a bank at Wells Fargo at a physical branch location, my branch manager was a homosexual. 
uh, self-identified as a Christian. So we had some interesting conversations about biblical realities, the gospel, and he knew where I stood on it. We had very candid and open conversations, but we also had a good working relationship. I'll even go so far to call him a friend at work. Um, I believe on the basis of Scripture that he wasn't a true Christian, that his lifestyle pattern revealed that he wasn't truly saved. However, I was able to love him. I was able to engage with him to talk about truth. And you never know what God might do with that in due course. So if that's you, if you're somebody who is in a context where you're rubbing shoulders with a friend or coworker or family member who self-identifies as homosexual, just know that you don't. You never know how the seeds that you plant now could have a, a, a harvest at some point in the future. So great question on that note. Can Jehovah's Witnesses go to heaven? Well, somebody was paying attention to our discussion last Sunday. The answer to that question lies with any denomination. Is It is absolutely possible for any person to go to heaven so long as they trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13. That's a fact. However, we also know that the Jehovah's Witness group espouses several problematic doctrines that are fundamentally antithetical to the Christian faith. Uh, Just by way of review, there's some here tonight who was not present in our Sunday school discussions, as well as those who are listening who might not have been there. I just want to make sure you're aware of some of the issues with Jehovah's Witnesses theology, and then I'll apply it a little bit more um, in terms of the question specifically regarding whether or not Jehovah's Witness can be a Christian. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, in terms of their doctrine, deny the Trinity. Um, They deny the deity of Christ. They deny that Jesus is God. Um, They believe that uh, before Jesus lived on earth, he was Michael the archangel, actually. Um, So he is a created being who was not um, actually eternal God. Uh, They also believe that to be saved, you have to be baptized. You have to be baptized, and you must earn your everlasting life through door-to-door work. The problem is, though, salvation in heaven is only limited to 144,000 people. That 144,000 number has already been met. So your only hope of having a heavenly experience, according to Jehovah's Witness theology, is to live on the earth during a future millennial reign. Um, and if you're not regarded as being righteous in their scheme, you, you simply are, you cease to exist. It's a view called annihilationism. Um, so a lot of issues there regarding Jehovah's Witness theology, just so you guys know the source, I would encourage you to purchase this for your own knowledge of other religions. Christianity, Cults, and Religions, published by Rose Publishing, a um, very helpful resource on the different false religions and cults in our world. Uh, My supervisor for my doctoral thesis, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, was involved with the uh, putting together of this resource uh, for apologetics purposes. So with all of that being said by way of parenthesis, I want to say that while it is possible for Jehovah's Witness or any other um, adherent to a different religion in the world, it is possible for them to be saved if they believe the true gospel. However, the likelihood of somebody willfully believing any Jehovah's Witness theology and being saved is non-existent. You can't deny the Trinity. You can't deny the deity of Christ. You can't believe in salvation by any works or combination of God's grace and works and be a Christian. So if you're a Jeho- so somebody's a Jehovah's Witness and believes the doctrine of the, of the Jehovah's Witness uh, organization or cult, they're not a Christian. If they're a Jehovah's Witness who does not know anything about what they believe, there's a, there's a chance they could be saved if they're trusting in Jesus. But again, um, very unlikely that would be the case, which is why it's our job to, in love, go to our Jehovah's Witness neighbors or family members, friends, and point them to the errors of their theology, just like we would with any other group. What is it an app again? So it's not an app. Um, it's, it's just a, a book. It's called, let me pull it up here. I've got an app called Scribed, and that's actually a good resource. So if you download the app called Scribed, C-R-I-B-D, for $15 a month, you get access to millions of books, publications, and so on. 
um, including this resource that I've just referenced. It's called Christianity, Cults, and Religions, published by Rose Publishing Group. Uh, you can access that through Scribe, $15 a month free of charge. I use it. Um, very easy to access, really good resources on the Christian faith. So, um, yeah, so just to, to tie it all up, uh, pot, it is possible for Jehovah's Witness to be saved so long as they're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and not the doctrine of Jehovah's Witness group. Next question here. Who is the most wise person in the Bible? Great question. Um, I would say Jesus was the most wise person in the Old Testament. Solomon was regarded as the most wise person. Um, but in terms of just in terms of person who's ever lived in the Bible, Jesus would be the most wise. So, really good question there. Jesus is always the answer, right? Uh, I don't think I have to expound that very much more. How do you deal with friends that don't have the same morals as you? It's a very good question. Um, I think I addressed it a little bit in the question regarding um, regarding the homosexuality issue. But uh, it's interesting. I, I had this conversation with a youth earlier today, and, and I'm going to try to reiterate it the best I can. Um, the Bible calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul, he, he instructs, I wrote, this is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and following, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a swindler or a drunkard, not even to eat with such a one, for what I have to do with judging outsiders. So Paul's saying that there's value in having friendships and relationships with people who aren't Christians because we're the means that God uses to evangelize them, to reveal truth to them. However, the Bible also warns us Me, uh, one second. I'm going to do a command find here. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three, same letter. Later on in that letter, and he was in the Bible somewhere. Paul says, "Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Because or become sober minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame." So. Paul's saying there, on the one hand, it's important to be around unbelievers so that you can be a means and a tool of witnessing to them. But on the other hand, be warned that if you surround yourself with bad company, your morals, your Christian, um, your, your Christian lifestyle could potentially be susceptible to corruption, to being influenced negatively by the company you're surrounding yourself with. So my counsel would be, don't put yourself in any situation with somebody where you could overtly sin by being in that context or your Christian witness could be damaged. If you're in a context where you're not going to be put in a situation where you're going to overtly sin or your Christian witness isn't going to be harmed, by all means, spend time with that person, love them, minister to them, have a relationship with them, but be very wise as to the context in which you surround yourself with somebody that you know doesn't share your Christian morals, doesn't have any desire to honor the Lord with their, with their words or with their lifestyles, it's very important to make sure that you're, you're thinking critically about you know, what contexts are going to be appropriate for you to spend time with somebody who doesn't see eye to eye with your um, Christian ethic. It's just interesting, isn't it, that Paul, from the earlier part of that letter to the Corinthians and then going on to the later part of that letter, he, he, he throws that caveat at the end, like, hey, you need to, you need to be around the immoral people, the, the unbelievers, as it were, but just be careful. Before I draw this letter to inclusion, be careful about that. Good question. How can we deal with teachers that believe the evolution theory and teachers whose beliefs we don't agree with? Sorry, I couldn't word it right. It's a great question. Um, First and foremost, I want to say this. There are godly men who have held to a form of theistic evolution throughout church history, and we're going to see them in glory someday. Uh, my mind goes to old Princeton, Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. B. Warfield, some of the greatest 
theologians of the past 150, 200-ish years held to some variety of evolutionary theory, but they believed the true gospel. They upheld the authority of Scripture. They had a lot of really good contributions to the body of Christ that we still glean from today. I read each of those three men to this day, despite disagreeing with them on evolutionary theory. So to answer your question, it depends on what kind of evolutionary theory they hold to. If they hold to Darwinian evolution theory, which is the idea that there is no divine being who's involved in the evolutionary process from beginning to end, then that's a theory that's incompatible with Scripture. Such a theory denies the historicity of Adam. So they deny that there was ever a true biblical character called Adam in the garden. Um, They would deny... Or they would, I should say it like this, they would affirm a Big Bang theory of evolution, either an eternal existence of matter that existed and then out of nowhere it, it combusted and began what we see today in creation, or that creation happened out of nothing, which some actually hold to that really incredible belief. Um, and it's a natural consequence of Darwinian evolution. So if you believe in Darwinian evolution, you can't hold to a biblical view of a historical Adam because the fossil record doesn't allow for that if you read the fossils in a Darwinian evolutionary way. According to Darwinian evolution, you have to have millions, potentially billions of years of death and disease and decay that eventually leads to the creation, um, or I don't want to say creation because they really don't, it's really not a technical term to use, technically accurate term to use. The, I should say the arrival, not the creation, you have billions and billions of years or millions and millions of years of death, decay, and disease, which eventually result in the arrival of human beings. That's inconsistent with the biblical account, which says that sin is what created death. You didn't have a progression of death and disease that led to the arrival of man. Rather, you have man and all of creation, and then sin happens, and then you have death. So if you want to hold to an evolutionary theory of creation, which Hodge and Warfield and um, Meredith Klein and uh, others have held to, William Lane Craig, you can hold to evolutionary theory of creation. You've got to affirm a literal atom. You've got to find a way to justify that in your view. And you can't have animal and human death prior to the fall. Because the Bible is very clear that sin is the... Or is the, or I should say, the, the result of sin, the consequences of sin, is is death and decay and disease and all the horror, uh, the horrific things that we see in our world today. Um, so, to that question, um, it just depends on what kind of evolutionary theory you hold to. I do not hold to any evolutionary theory. I believe in a young Earth, uh, but I do know godly men. Uh, my supervisor at Southern Seminary holds to an old Earth view, holds to a form of evolutionary theory, and. Um, Look forward to maybe having opportunities to know a little bit more about why he comes to that conclusion. But very smart and godly Christians do hold to that, and we need to be able to say that it's okay to hold to that so long as you're within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy on other key doctrines, namely the historicity of Adam and not having death before the fall. Second part of that question regarding how do you deal with teachers that you disagree with it's just key to understand what what kind of disagreements are we talking about. Is it a disagreement on something that's foundational to Christianity, something that's definitional to Orthodox Christianity, the Trinity, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, the authority and inspiration of Scripture, um, the deity of Christ, the literal return of Jesus Christ that's going to happen at some point in the future? Those are things that we have to be willing to die uh, die for. Those are hills we have to be willing to die on because you cannot be a Christian and reject those truths. Or are we talking about a secondary or tertiary issue? Secondary issue would be something like baptism, the mode of baptism, understanding of covenant theology, understanding of church government, um, elder-led versus elder-ruled issues. Um, those, are isu- those are instances of secondary doctrinal issues. Those might not allow you to be part of the same church, However, you can certainly have God-honoring and edifying relationships with people who do disagree on secondary issues. Tertiary issues are things that you can agree or you can agree to disagree on and still be members of the same church, even still serve on the same staff with debates over Calvinism and Arminianism is such of an issue. Um, eschatology is an issue. Um, depending on the context, 
spiritual gifts, uh, whether cessationism or continuationism. Again, depending on the context, that could become a secondary issue, but nevertheless, most Christians recognize it as a tertiary issue. Um, I would be willing to put evolutionary theory, depending on what type of evolutionary theory was embraced as a tertiary issue, um, I would have no problem serving with Timothy Paul Jones in pastoral ministry, despite me being a young earth and him being an older. We can have charitable disagreements. Um, we don't reject any foundational first-level um, doctrines, and we're like-minded as Baptists on secondary issues. So um, to, to circle the wagons back to that second question, you need to discern what kind of issue you're disagreeing on. Immature Christians make secondary and tertiary issues hills to die on, which lead to broken fellowship and conflict in the local church. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity. So be a mature Christian, go to Scripture, discern what your disagreements are on, and then have a gracious and charitable relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you disagree with some secondary and tertiary issues. Go on to another question now. How do I keep someone, or how do I help someone who says that they're a Christian but keeps falling into sin and has no way of coming to church? Well, I'll start with the second part of that question. Be the way they come to church. If they want to be at church, you be the means of bringing them there. Ask your mom or your dad to help you bring them. If you can't drive, you can drive. Bend over backwards to bring them to the local church for worship and fellowship and encouragement. Um, now, if they don't want to go to church, and if their lifestyle pattern is one of unbroken, unrepentant sin, then on the authority of Scripture, we know that they're not saved. Does it mean that, does it mean that true Christians don't fall into seasons of sin or don't make really dumb or bad mistakes from time to time? But if there's no repentance, if there's no brokenness, if there's no... Um, mourning or sorrow for sin and they want nothing to do with the local church, they are not a Christian. And that might be a gospel conversation you have to have. Um, but if they just don't have any way of coming to church, by all means, try to do everything you can to bring them here. We know from Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, uh, that Christians are to not neglect the assembling together. The church is a way that we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Um, it's a means of grace to way God uses to grow us, to encourage us, um, so I would encourage you, whoever asked that question, be, be the person who brings them to church if you can, if they want to come. If they don't want to come, you might take them to the end of James 1, James 2, walk them through, say, hey, you know, if you, hear the, if, if you just hear the word of God but you don't obey it, you know, you, you, you're, not, you're not a Christian. Um, if you have no desire to obey the Word of God, you're not, you're not a believer no matter what your profession of faith is. That's a tough conversation to have. I don't ever want to undermine that, but it might be a conversation you need to have anyways. Um, if, 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 it, if the sin issue persists and if their absence from, from church continues. Uh, if you have any questions about um, how to counsel them on a more specific issue, please come to me or Brother Robert. We'd love to help you any way that we can. How can we show people who think that they are saved just because they attend church or were baptized that they are wrong? That's a great question. It uh, dovetails nicely on everything I just said. Go to James 2. Let's just, for the sake of the listener who might not be following our James series, let's go to James 2. This is a great place to go. Or just I'll just read the Word of God. We'll break it down. Fly over. What use is it, my brethren, James writes, verse 14 of chapter 2, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. Of course it can't save him. Well, let's continue. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Think about that. Hey, I see that you're in need. Hey, best of luck to you. I have the means and opportunity to help you out, but I'm not going to help you out. James concludes, verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Just as it's useless, it, just, just as your expression of care for somebody who's in need is useless if you don't help them out when you have the needs or you have the means and opportunity to help them out, so also is it useless to say, I have faith, but no external evidence of that faith. 
It's just as useless. But James continues, and this gets to the heart issue. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. This is on the other side of the coin. Remember, so you've got the person who professes faith but has no lifestyle pattern to demonstrate that they're a Christian. Uh, They never go to church. They live in unbroken patterns of sin. They may have been baptized or made some decision in the past, but their lifestyle gives no indication that their profession of faith is genuine. That person's not a Christian. But on the other hand, you have the person who checks all the right boxes. Man, they go to church. They can quote truth, right? Just like the demons, they can quote the great Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, they're involved in ministry. They're upstanding uh, citizens in the community. Man, they've got all the right boxes, but it doesn't come from a heart that loves God. They live in secret sin, or it's being manufactured because they want to check boxes to make themselves appear self-righteous before God or before others. Such, all, such a person is also not saved. True saving faith is not only a lifestyle pattern that is, in, that is consistent with Scripture and that is in keeping with Um, Christ-like conduct, but it also flows from a heart that loves God and wants to glorify God. It's not just enough to do the right things if your heart's not into it. It's not just enough to have emotion or say that you believe, but your lifestyle have no um, evidence of you actually believing what you profess to believe. It's everything we've been learning in James uh, 2. And um, for the listener, if you're curious for a more detailed treatment of that, you can go and and find those uh, on my sermon audio but yeah, that, that would be my answer to that question. If they, don't go, if, they've, if they don't go to church, their lifestyle doesn't look the part, despite maybe they've been baptized, despite maybe they've made a decision fast, with love and with as much graciousness and respectfulness that you can muster, show them James 2 and just see what the Lord does with that. Um, it's going to be a hard conversation, guys. I've had to have that conversation with childhood friends and family members. There's people in our church right now that I've had to have conversations with similar to that. It's never easy. Whether you're a pastor or a layperson, it's never easy to do that. But as we talked about earlier, we do have a responsibility biblically to point others to the Scripture and to give, a, give an answer for the hope that is within us, but with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15, 2 Timothy 2.24-26. Um, anyways, hope that's helpful for whoever asked that question. How do you tell someone who is blind and deaf about the Bible? Um, Find a good translation or resources that uh, uses Braille or however they communicate. That would be the best answer I can give to that. I mean, disabled people. Yeah, Braille, the the things that you touch that blind people use to read and communicate. um, that That would be what I would say. Just find some good resources, Bible resources, things like that, that you can get to them to help them uh, in their disability. To the listener, this was submitted by a youth, and I am not going to duck a question. What are the five points of Calvinism? We're going to answer that tonight, and um, I'm not going to duck a question that's being asked from a youth, so we're going to, we're going to address that tonight. Um, five points of Calvinism. I'll start broadly here. Um, the term Calvinism historically has been used in reference to the thought of John Calvin. So you have Calvin, reference to John Calvin. Ism, you add that to the end. You have Calvin's belief system. Okay, That's Calvinism broadly. Over the last couple hundred years, however, the phrase Calvinism has come to be known as, uh, or has come to be likened to what has historically been known as the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace were formulated at the Synod of Dort in the early 17th century, in the year was 1617, 1619 range when that was taking place. And essentially it was a response to the Roman Catholic system of salvation, which um, was essentially a works-based understanding of salvation. Um, it's Christ plus baptism, prayers to Mary, confession to a priest, um, partaking in the Mass, so on and so forth. Uh, we've talked about 
uh, the heretical doctrines that Roman Catholics espouse in previous sessions. I'm not going to belabor that uh, in light of this particular question. But the doctrines of grace, or Calvinism, uh, has historically been uh, summarized in an acrostic called TULIP. And uh, the, the, the acrostic TULIP is an attempt to summarize how God and man relate in salvation. How does God and man relate in the act of salvation? Let's go through each tulip or each letter of the tulip uh, acrostic here. And I actually have a resource that um, by and large I agree to. And um, there's more that can be said certainly here in this acrostic. But I want to give you the gist and I want to give you relevant scripture references to read for you and for the listener. And you can discern, like the Bereans in Acts 17, you can discern whether or not this is consistent with Scripture. And let me just say, for the sake of the listener and for the benefit of those here tonight, good, godly people disagree on the doctrines of grace. You don't have to be uh, a Calvinist in order to go to heaven. There's many non-Calvinists in the kingdom. Um, Me, on a personal level, I have no problems serving with non-Calvinists. I have no problem doing church with non-Calvinists. I love many non-Calvinists. In fact, one of my letters of recommendation for my doctorate was submitted by a non-Calvinist professor I had during my THM at Campbellsville University. So I just want to preface everything by saying this. Good, godly people disagree here, and um, it's important that we don't make this any bigger than what it needs to be in terms of those disagreements. As I mentioned earlier, it's a mark of spiritual immaturity to hold a secondary or tertiary doctrine at the level of primary foundational importance. And we don't want to be spiritual, uh, spiritually immature. So with that being said, by way of preface, here is the doctrines of grace as summarized in the acrostic TULIP in response to the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. Number one, T, first letter, total depravity or total inability, summarized in this way. Because of the fall, all of Adam's descendants are spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, and every area of our being is tainted with sin and rebellion against God. Therefore, all men are incapable by their own will to seek or to desire God. Key text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Colossians 2.13, Romans 5.12, and Romans 3.11 through 18. Good passages there to substantiate the T, total depravity or total inability. U, unconditional election. God, being sovereign, truly free, and perfectly loving, mercifully chose from the foundation of the world to save a particular people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. These people were elected and predestined to be redeemed on the basis of God's will alone, for in and of themselves they were incapable and unwilling to choose Him. Key texts, Ephesians 1, 4-6, Romans 8, 29-30, and the whole chapter of Romans 9, uh, and Ephesians 1, 11-12. So, T-U... Now to L, limited atonement or definite atonement. Summarized, in his atoning sacrifice, Jesus actually fulfilled the plan of salvation for those who were predestined. He did not merely open a path for salvation. He did not merely make men savable, but he effectively and eternally saved those who would believe. All whom God has elected and all for whom Christ died will be saved. Key text, John 6, 37-40, John 17, 9, book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10, uh, talk about the, the high priestly office of Christ, His sacrifice on the cross on behalf of His people that the Father gave to Him from before the foundation of the world. Uh, John 10, another great passage, uh, John 10, 11 and following, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep, not for the goats, the sheep, right? Um, so T-U-L-I, irresistible grace or effectual calling. Summarized, all those who have been called to salvation will respond and be saved. God's grace is effectual. 
This means that God is not saving people against their will, but rather God softens their hearts, regenerating them in order that they may desire of their own accord to repent and be saved. John 10, 16-17, Ezekiel 36, 26, uh, John 6, 44, some key texts there among others. Um, if you need more texts, I can give you some after our time together tonight. Just have to look into some notes. But um, T-U-L-I, now to P, perseverance of the saints, summarized. Since salvation exclusively depends on God's work and will and not on man's performance or desire in and of himself, those who have been called to salvation will persevere in the faith until the end. None for whom Christ died will be lost, for they are in God's hand. In short, true salvation cannot be lost. John 10, 27 to 39, Hebrews 7, 25. Um, among other places there. 1 John 2.19 So, for the sake of the listener and those here tonight, I recognize this can be a controversial subject to some. However, it should not be controversial. This should be a matter where we can charitably agree to disagree on some issues, go to the Scriptures to see whether or not these uh, are biblical, and, um, and to move forward from there. So I hope that was clarifying. Whoever asked for clarification on Calvinism, I'll be more than happy to provide additional resources if you so desire. But moving on to the next question. What is a good seminary to go to? It's a great question. I know that at least one of you in here are thinking about a career. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, a lifestyle and vocational ministry. Several seminaries that would be of good choice to you. Um, I'm obviously biased here because I went to two of these. Uh, the Master's University and Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, Reformation Bible College for undergrad, uh, Westminster Seminary, California, and Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia are some. Covenant College, another good one. Um, yeah, yeah, we have some, some alum here. So... Those are some good ones off the top of my head. Midwest, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary is getting better. Um, those are just some good seminaries that I would put my stamp of approval on. Um, take that for what it's worth. What about Campbellsville? Did you say that one? Campbellsville University? Oh, yeah, University. Uh, it's a, it's not It's not a seminary, technically. It's a university, so I didn't think of, I didn't think of that. But, yeah, go Tigers. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an alumni there, so. Okay, here's an interesting one. How does God view time? So, um, the best way that I can summarize this, because to a certain degree we're not going to be able to exhaust everything about God's view of time, but we have to affirm certain realities about, uh, about God and about time before we can answer this question. First and foremost, we have to affirm the creator-creature distinction. God is creator. Everything that is not God is creature. Right? God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists forever. Anything not God is creature, including time. Now, what is time? Well, time, properly understood, is the succession of events. Time is the succession of events, or the changing of events over a period of time. So you've got to use the word time to define time. Um, we know in God, there is no change. God is immutable. He does not change. God is eternal. Time is a creature. God is omnipresent. So God fills the fullness of time and He envelops time from start to finish. He's outside of time. He fills the fullness of time. Um, if I were, if you were to, if I could illustrate it, picture, picture God. Okay, it's one circle. And picture time as a circle going around it. Okay, going around the circle that is God. God is just as close to every point of that circle as to the others. He's just as he, he is just as present in the Garden of Eden as he is in the new heavens and the new earth because he envelops time and he fills the fullness of time. He doesn't undergo successive change or unfolding in a linear way that we think of time. Um, that's why time has to be created, by the way. 
because time is linear. If there was never a fixed moment in time in which time began, then we would never get to the present because you would have an infinite regress to the past. So time must be created. There must be a moment of creation because we would never get to the present because the past would go on forever. Um, what else could I say about this? Um, another way to do it is picture, picture a, a line. Now picture you drawing an arc over one point of that line to the other. That's God. God relates to every point in time uh, just as much as he does to any other point in time. Uh, the, the Puritans spoke of God being eternal as God seeing time as an eternal now. So God sees all of time at one and the same time by virtue of his omnipresence and by virtue um, of him existing apart from time because God is creator. He's not creature. There's a creator-creature distinction. Um, I hope that helps whoever asked that question. It's a very philosophical question. Psalm 139 is a good place to go to. Um, you know, God being omnipresent, what implications that has. Uh, so that, that's something that you can, you can think about there. All right, next question. Are biblically accurate angels crazy looking? Absolutely they are. Let me tell you this much. All the people who say they've seen an angel and and just, you know, man, they had a sense of humor, or they cuddled with the angel, or, you know, whatever crazy stories you hear today, uh, they didn't see an angel. Every time in Scripture where man confronts an angel, they're terrified. The angels are terrifying beings. You would be if, if God allowed us to see the angelic realm that's going on around us even now, you would be terrified by what you saw. So to answer the question, yes, they are very crazy looking. It would terrify you and me. Um, we can say that on the on the testimony of Scripture. I mean, imagine this. Let me give you let me just give you one text that describes an angelic being. Let's go to Isaiah six. And by the way, not to get too nerdy on you guys, but the Apostle John, in John 12, says that he, the, the, the angel that he, or not the angel, um, the Lord here in this text is Jesus. So there's a Trinitarian reference that we see most clearly in light of New Testament revelation. This is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus in this passage according to John, John 12. Now listen to this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. Here, here, tell me if this isn't crazy looking, whoever asked this question. Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Could you imagine that six-winged figure in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ? To be, to, to be able to be in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ in that glory says something. Obviously, the angel had to cover his, his eyes and his, his feet. Um, and then the other two he used to fly. But um, I think such a being would, would probably alarm you. Uh, if, if he showed up. So that's just a good place to go to. I mean, there's other places we can go to. Um, Revelation 4. I'll give you another one. You have the four living creatures. It says they were full of eyes in front and behind. They've got eyes in front. They've got eyes in back. I don't know about you. That would, that would terrify me. Revelation 4. Uh, six and following describes that. So we don't. We, I'm not going to go to every passage that talks about angels, but take it to the bank. Angels, they're glorious beings. They're terrifying beings. Um, they're majestic beings. Uh, we don't worship them because they're creature. We only worship the creator. Angels had a fixed point in time in which they came into being, um, but we do respect them, um, even even revere them as such. 
um, because they're special beings that God's created, but we don't worship them uh, nevertheless. Okay, another question. Does the phrase angel of the Lord ever refer to Jesus? Most theologians say that every reference to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate revelation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Um, Some say, Augustine would be an example, that the angel of the Lord is a creaturely personification of the undivided Trinity. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to create a creaturely personification um, of God communicating with his creatures in a way that's in accordance with his purpose. So it's, it's, it's a creature that is specially created by the undivided Trinity for the purpose of create or for the purpose of revealing something that God once revealed to his people in that moment. Um, that's not a very popular view today. It was very popular during the patristic era of church history. However, um, throughout the patristic era of church history on to now, if you see the angel of the Lord, it is uh, likely a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Again, perfect example being, um, although it wasn't explicitly the angel of the Lord, um, we see that pre-incarnate visions of Christ were, um, were, were, were at least, I don't want to say they were frequent or common, but they did happen in the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, it's interesting. For reasons known only to God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he is the means of revelation that communicates God's being and his character to man. The Father sends the Son, the Spirit reveals the Son to sinners. And the Son is the one in the spotlight, as it were. He is the mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. Um, so it's just interesting that the Father didn't come take on flesh, the Spirit didn't come take on flesh. It was the Son for reasons done only within the Godhead itself that Jesus would be that means of mediating between God and man, of revealing God's character and being to man in a special way. I don't know if that had anything to do with the question, but I felt led to say it. What do you do if your parent does not know God? Pray. First and foremost, you pray uh, for their salvation. Um, Let me go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6. Let me give you your responsibility in every circumstance, unless doing so would cause you to sin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Christian children are to be the most respectful, obedient children when compared to the rest of the world. That's your calling at your age and in your season of life. You pray for your parents' salvation. If they ask you about church, share it with them. Um, Take advantage of every opportunity to share the truths that you're learning about God and and, and that that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But you need to do so in such a way that's respectful, that's submissive, that's obedient, unless doing so would cause you to commit sin. I know that's not always easy because in in the verse that follows... It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord that would also apply to uh, mothers as well. So there's a, there should be in the Christian household, ideally, the parents leading in a godly way, the kids graciously, willingly submitting. In this context, in this question, the parents are not believers, or at least one of them is not a believer. Um, I think a good application, um, although this pertains to the husband and wife relationship in 1 Peter 3, it says, it says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word of God, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your respectful behavior. So children, the means God uses to save your parents may just be your character putting Christ on display, your respectfulness, your willingness to submit to them, to obey them, to honor them. Um, but yeah, pray. Take advantage of every opportunity you have to share the truths that you're learning about God from his word. Um, Let others know, let other believers know how we can pray because it's a powerful means God uses to accomplish his purposes. Just, uh, I think, one more that was submitted by a youth and then we will wrap up. What good book is in the Bible for new Christians? 
the best place that you can go to as a brand new Christian? I'll give you two. In terms of nurturing your personal relationship with God, reflecting on the gospel, reflecting on, um, reflecting on the character of your Lord and Savior, go to the book of John. The book of John was written so that people might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So it is a very easy, uh, I should say, I mean, it, it, it's a very straightforward gospel written to primarily a Gentile audience um, because obviously if it's written so that people might come to know that Jesus is the Son of God, you're going to be fulfilling the Great Commission by going out to all the ends of the earth, which are going to be filled with Gentiles. So new Christian to nurture your own piety, to nurture your own relationship with God, and to meditate frequently on the character and excellencies of your Lord and Savior, go to the Gospel of John. Practically, book of James for brand new Christians. That's why I'm preaching through it with you guys. That's why that was the book I chose out of all the Bible. Because the book of James tells you, this is how you are to live a Christ-like life. And that is why we're taking our time through it. We're going to, I mean, anytime I teach through the Bible, I want to make sure that we, you know, go as deep as we can, um, unpack the rich truths that God has for us. But very practically, um, book of James is, it's kind of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. It's like the New Testament book of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the right application of biblical truth. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just being smarter than people. It's how can I rightly apply biblical truth to my life? That's wisdom. That's biblical wisdom. Uh, the most wise thing you and I can ever do is put ourselves in situations where we can rightly apply truth. That's always the answer. God, what should I do in this situation? God, what should I do in that situation? Here's the answer. What course of action will allow you to accurately apply biblical truth in this situation or in this decision-making process? So the book of John, to nurture your own piety, and the book of James, to help you with the practical application of what godliness and Christ-likeness looks like before watching the world. Well, that's going to conclude our time of Q&A tonight. Um, really appreciate the participation. I mean, I don't know how many questions we went through here, but I got a really nice pile of them here on the floor next to me. I'm proud of you guys for thinking critically about the Word of God and wanting to dive deep tonight. Let me close in a word of prayer, and we will be dismissed. Hope to see you this Saturday at our fellowship event hosted by the Youth Committee if you're available. And, of course, we have Sunday school on Sunday, trunk or treat in the evening. I'm looking forward to this weekend. Let's go to Lord in prayer. God, what a privilege it is to, to serve your people. The fact that you've given me the privilege to, to be an under-shepherd of the, of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is something that, that gives me joy inexpressible. This is the greatest honor of my life, and I hope that every person in this room and family represented in this room knows how much I love them in the Lord, how much I want to see them grow in Christ's likeness. I pray that would be their prayer, Father. As important as it is to know truth and to understand your word, may it be every person's prayer in here that they would take your word and apply it to their lives, that they would be wise men and women in Christ. Father, I pray that everything discussed tonight was helpful, uh, clear. Father, that if there's any follow-up questions or concerns that need to be addressed, I pray you'd put it on the hearts of those here tonight or those listening to come to me and or Brother Robert, so we can minister to them, Lord. God, I ask that as we prepare to leave this place now, this time of worship, my prayer is that you would keep us safe this week. Again, we pray for Ganado. We pray for uh, the law enforcement in Jackson County and uh, here for, for the citizens in Jackson County. Lord, that you would protect them as this criminal is still at large. And Lord, that um, your justice and righteousness would prevail through the execution of law enforcement, one of the ordained means you use to preserve humanity in this fallen world. And God, as it pertains to us, as we leave here, God, um, not only would you keep us safe, but Father, would you help us to glorify you and the different tasks and relationships and responsibilities you've entrusted us with for the rest of this week. Father, even now, as you prepare our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth on the upcoming Lord's Day, God, that that would be the, the high point of our week, that the times that we get to gather with the saints each and every week would be not just something we do, but, Father, that it would be the, uh, the center point of which, we, of which we organize all of our weekly activities around, 
so we can dwell with you and your people and be richly nourished spiritually by your word and by the fellowship of the saints. We love you, God, so much. We give you thanks for tonight. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together with your Holy Spirit. Amen.